Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the RhinoCast podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. This week on the Rhino Podcast, we have J.J. French from Twisted Sister talking about two of their classic releases, You Can't Stop Rock and Roll and Live at the Marquee. Dennis? You know, I have to admit, of the two of us, I'm trying to figure out which one is the bigger headbanger. Well, that was tough, man. In the early 80s, when the metal stuff was really happening, I was more into, like, the second wave of Britpop that came out, like the jam and all the ska stuff, the two-tone stuff. Yeah, that's where you and I overlap, and of course, I added all that new wave synth stuff into the mix. But that said, you're talking to a Queens boy, so I relate to Long Island and Joyzy. I didn't know much about Twisted Sister, but I was heavily into the UK band Slade, and so were they. And of course, if you were alive in the early 80s, you couldn't get away from Twisted Sister. They were everywhere. They seemed like every other song played on MTV was that band. 
they were massive. I mean, and that's the great thing about doing this podcast is the things that you and I learn. It's pretty incredible. And this new two disc set, which has got the original You Can't Stop a Rock and Roll with three bonus tracks. And then disc two is the Live at the Marquee 1983. Again, I didn't know that much about this band and how huge they were even before they were signed. Absolutely. And I think one of the interesting things about these two releases is this was really before their mainstream MTV success. They were a hardworking club band. They did so many dates. They played so often. People say you've got to get your 10,000 hours in before you succeed. They surpassed 10,000 hours years before these albums came out. They busted their butts getting their scene together. And it really shows on both of these records this band is so tight. It's a great document of a band that was about to blow up and just dominate the world of heavy metal. And it's almost like they knew, because live at the Marquee, 1983 in particular, the recording is pristine. I mean, remastered, it's incredible, but it was recorded like a big record. The Marquee, what a classic rock venue that is, right? Of course, you had the Stones played there. The famous poster from The Who with Pete Townsend doing his windmill in black and white live at the Marquee. They loved them there. And it's almost like they walked in the room knowing they were going to be big. I think people that are that successful have to have that attitude because there's so many pitfalls and people get riddled with self-doubt, but you have to have that conviction. You have to believe in what you do in order for other people to believe in what you do. And it's evident. I mean, you listen to the crowd on this Live at the Marquee release and they are into it, man. Yeah. And you can't stop rock and roll. I mean, this is their first, you know, signed record to a label. And I mean, it's so darn tight. It's incredible. And they had swagger. They're a band that came out of that glam tradition. They were very of the moment. They're put into that hard, classic rock thing, but they really did respect. I mean, Slade was a glam band, and people don't really, I think to this day, you know, it's a word that's just used, but they don't really understand what T-Rex was, what Slade was, because there were no genres that you could identify a Twisted Sister with. Yeah, and I think at one point, J.J. in the interview even says something about they were the New Jersey version of the New York Dolls. Back to the We're Not Gonna Take It and their cover on this live record of of Shirley and Lee's Let the Good Times Roll, which we should play a clip of right now just so people can hear exactly what we're talking about. This ain't by us. This is by a band that we used to be really into a lot and we all into a lot. This is a bit of an older one. Uh, this one was originally done by Slade, man. F***ing Slade. I love Naughty, man. This was called Let the Good Times Roll. I mean, Rich, where do we even go with D's raps on this thing, except that in the editing, we have to do a lot of beeping. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the way that they referred to their fans, SMFs. Yes. D, he wrote so many of their songs. And Um, that boy could talk. (laughs) 
that's kind of one of the famous things about their shows is D's raps. Let's listen to some of D's rap right now from Live at the Marquee. Now turn the lights on, motherfuckers. I want to see what's going down out there. Look, 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 look. Look at this. You know, now, we're really glad to have you down here. And we just like to thank our friends who are waiting around all day long. Some people were here all fing afternoon waiting online and waiting and waiting and waiting. Because there was a lot of people who didn't make it in tonight. They weren't allowed in. Probably mostly liggers and posers anyway. So, you know the liggers and posers, they go, oh wow, man, like, you know, I guess I'll go down around 9.30ish, you know, and I'll come in fashionably late and everybody will check out my perfect hairstyle and I'm so intense, new wave and all that. And they come strolling up to the door and they find there ain't no room for assholes at the marquee tonight. <laughs> The only thing we got room for is sick motherfuckers, you understand? <laughs> now, you know what you are? You are sick motherfuckers. I want you to let me know that you know you are sick of the motherfuckers. Now, what are you? Sick motherfuckers. What? Sick motherfuckers. What? Sick motherfuckers. Don't don't forget that now. Don't forget that. No, 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 no. Rich, I have an idea. Yes. We've, we've talked so much about these raps. How about we listen to J.J. French rap about Twisted Sister with us? Let's get to it. Here we go. 1983, I believe, would be the year. I mean, you don't look that old, so does it feel like 35 years ago, J.J.? Well, I can tell you that there's not enough ibuprofen to get me to want to rock on stage any longer. But uh, that's only because <laughs> my motto is sex, prescription, drugs, and rock and roll at this time. And, um, <laughs> I, it, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, it's a long time, and we certainly paid our dues. You know, I have 37 gold and platinum albums, and one day I'm looking at them all. I had an ego wall, which I took down after I got married. You know, I went from like a man cave to a man room to a man closet, and I'm into a man drawer. I think I have a little guitar pick that says I'm in Twisted Sister somewhere floating around this drawer. Because I looked at it one day, and I thought, wow, what was the price I paid to get that? And I don't know if it was worth it. It was a very, very, very long haul, and when we retired in 2016, for me, I had played over 9,200 shows at the time. The experiences of the band highs and lows have been spectacular. On the other hand, I can think back to yesterday when I was at the Marquee doing that show. I mean, I know exactly what happened that night and the nights of the live show that's coming out on vinyl. But it was a great time and possibly the last real fun time we had before the band broke up and then reunited. So you were added to the band after you auditioned at, quote, their house in Hohokus, New Jersey. And Silver Star became Twisted Sister. You didn't like that name much, did you? Well, this band that I joined, which has nothing to do with the band that made it, it was 1972. I was in an Allman Brothers cover band. It was the end of my hippie era. You know, I was born in 52, so I was 20. And I subscribed to Fusion Magazine and got a Bowie album, a Lou Reed album, and a Martha Hoople album that kind of changed my life. And I looked at Mick Ronson. I said, I want to be this guy. Then the Dolls were playing at the Mercer Arts Center. To put that in perspective, I'm doing this interview on Mercer Street, down the street from where the Mercer Arts Center used to be. I used to go see the Dolls every Sunday night. I saw Bowie in September of 72 and basically changed my life, cut my hair, dyed it blonde, wanted to be in a glam band, put my name out, and I get a phone call from a group that was auditioning for guitar players for a glam band that was going to look like the New York Dolls in New Jersey. So I offered to audition and they took me and I was the last guy of that version of the band and it was called Silver Star. It was actually called Stud and then they changed it to Silver Star because that was a glamier name and I said that I thought it sucked 
And I came up with, I, I came up with, because I'm a New York guy, so I'm kind of a funny New York guy, you know, so I said, what about the Max Factor? I thought that was kind of cool, you know. And they didn't get that. And then the singer at that time, Michael, thought of the name Twisted Sister, which was a genius name. You changed your name to, quote, celebrate the new band name. What were some of the choices before you settled in on J.J. French? Well, my last name was Seagal, so it was Jonathan Livingston Seagal. That was one. Johnny Heartbreaker. <laughs> Johnny Heartbreaker was, yeah. Oh, Johnny Heartbreaker was another. Uh, but then Johnny Thunders had Johnny and the Heartbreakers. So that that kind of didn't work. And I was kind of fishing around for a different name. And my middle name is French, so my name was John French Seagal. So I thought, yeah, I like French, and we'll figure out something else. And so J.J. kind of became a nickname in the summer of 73 only because when you're doing a lot of quaaludes, it's easy to say J.J., you know, when you're in the audience. Hey, J.J., man, what's up? <laughs> you know, because you know, John, John is too hard to remember, you know. So I was like, hey, J.J. <laughs> Somehow when you're really wrecked, you can still say my name. J.J., everybody had uh, fake names. The guitar player was Billy Steiger. His name was Billy Diamond. Michael Valentine instead of Michael O'Neill. Armel Anderson was the drummer. Mel Starr was his name. And Kenneth Harrison Neal was the bass player, and he kept his name. The musicians in Twisted Sister, the original band, were really good musicians, you know. This was a band that could play. You know, the drummer was a school drummer. The bass player was a spectacular musician. The guitar player was great. And me, you know, we were a copy band as opposed to the Dolls, who were originals. We did copies because that's the, how you survived in the bars, out of the lineup that made it, you were the guy that was there from the very beginning, and you saw through all these lineup changes. You really had a vision for this band from the get-go, didn't you? Well, I knew I wanted to be successful. I knew I couldn't be successful with the guys I was with, and I also knew that uh, drugs and alcohol were having a terrible effect on me, so I really rejected it completely. The problem was trying to find guys who were straight being a band. It was very hard to find the right guys with the right talent who also believed in what I did, but D believed it. He was the fourth singer, totally believed it. Mark Mendoza, the bass player, who was in The Dictators, by the way, totally straight, completely hardworking guy, dedicated his life to the band. He got it. It took a lot of work to find totally straight people to be in a band. Oh, by the way, straight guys who are also willing to look like women. So let's talk for, you know, there's talking. There's, <laughs> with the days. There, there's, there's straight and there's straight, you know, like we were double straight. Yeah, sure. And, and, right. we, wow. you know, and right. we look like women, you know, because that was the best way to get laid back in those days. Cause girls like guys that look like girls. And we surmised that early on and it worked as a technique beautifully because we had, <laughs> so, uh, you know, so that was it, you know, so we were just a hardworking band, but we were not uh, a West coast metal band and we were not the dolls. We were a weird duck. You know, people say to me, you know, when they use eighties hairband, I said, you don't understand. We have nothing to do with the eighties. We were a seventies bar band that made it in the eighties. In the first two years of Twisted Sisters' career, just the first two, 73, 74, actually 21 months because we didn't get rolling until March of 73, we played 396 nights on the first two years. And if I added up all the shows we played, which was 1,960 performances and three hours a night plus rehearsal, we came up with about 6,600 hours of playing time 
in the first two years, and that's how you become a great band. And that was just the first two years. You start adding that up over the 10 years, and you get to these ridiculous numbers. And that kind of drive and discipline is what makes you a bulletproof band, and we're bulletproof. We flew to England, and we did a television show called The Tube. That is the video that got us our record deal. And we played the marquee the next day, and the record executive who saw us on The Tube show came down to the marquee and told us he was signing the band. Imagine a bunch of guys from Long Island who played in a bar band for 10 years are now in the studio with the original master tapes of uh, Led Zeppelin and basically we're acting like Jews at the Wailing Wall. You know, we're davening, we're kissing the boxes as we walk. So we lived there for two months and, and recorded the album. And then uh, as we were concluding the recording in March of 83, Phil said, we need live stuff. And he said, let's go back to the marquee one more time. And we'd played the marquee, I think, six times prior to that. And the marquee was, at the time, was, you know, the most famous rock club in the history of rock clubs. The Rolling Stones were the house band. Yes was the house band. ACDC was the house band. Hendrix played The Doors. I mean, everybody played this. So we were given a Christmas card that previous Christmas, signed by the staff, saying to one of the greatest bands to ever play the marquee. Can't Stop Rock and Roll was a breath of fresh air in the early New Wave era. And then paired with, you know, Live at the Marquee as a double album. It's an amazing document of how songs transform from live performance to studio, though it's kind of backwards since the live album usually comes afterwards. Well, we recorded those shows and a couple of the songs wound up on EPs, various singles in Europe, but not in America. And frankly, the record label kind of forgot it existed. And one day right. I was roaming I was roaming through the um, cavernous library of masters that Warner Music had in New York City on 55th Street and came upon the live album and said, man, if we could ever release that someday in the future, we should. And it was released limited edition on a CD a couple of years ago, very limited edition, but it was never really fully widely distributed. And the fact is, is that it never was on vinyl where it should have been. And now that it's a double package you can get the whole picture 
of what it was like at that period. It's such a great period piece. The band was really at the peak of its soul. Uh, you know, we were happy. We, we really had a great time making the record. We were really a band with a vision and a direction. And the songs on Can't Stop Rock and Roll are extraordinary. And I Am, I Me was a hit single. You know, You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, um, Kids Are Back. There's so many great, great, great songs on that record. Then the live record, we had the opportunity to play them live. It was an amazing time. Circle the wagons and sound the alarm. It's time for the Rhino Roundup. All right, we're here with the Rhino Roundup. This is Lauren G. And John Hughes. And a couple of special guests today. I'm Dana J. Oh, drama hours. <laughs> <laughs> and we are talking about 1983. I want to do this Rhino Round Robin style. I'm going to pick my top three tracks from 1983. Okay. And then you'll all follow suit. Uh, I'm going to go with... Just, wait, hold on. Just three? Just, uh, well, we'll see. All right, go ahead. <laughs> I'm going with New Order Blue Monday. Yeah, sorry, John. Well, why? Why Why Blue Monday? Sorry. I mean, I am just, a, I'm just an 80s British new wave, dark wave junkie. So anything for me, New Order, Depeche Mode... The Smiths, Cabaret Voltaire. Yeah, yeah. yeah we can go. We can go darker. Okay. <laughs> Bauhaus, mm-hmm. <laughs> burning down the house. I mean, Talking Heads, kind of quintessential '80s band. Um, a little bit. They always have that little Afro beat thing right. going on. Mm-hmm. And then my girl Stevie Nicks came out with "Stand Back." Oh, yeah. So. Pretty much a synth pop song, really. Yeah. If you think about yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, you know what? It's very Prince because of his influence on song, you can, obviously. You can but. work out to any of those no. songs. <laughs> Get your leg warmers. You can you? work out to any of yeah. those songs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Song. Take it away. Well, for me, um, you know, uh, Les Sands comes out. And we've uh, got David Bowie at his at his greatest. Now I now I don't not all John's picks. I know. I know. I'm sorry, but but it is it was a very uh, you know obviously it's more the more commercial album for him, and he never kind of recovered from that. It took a while as far as critical you know whatnot. But it's the song that gets everybody on the dance floor. It's the song that I use for my wedding, like at our reception. That was the song that got everybody out there, and it's it's. You know, it's still it still kicks. So that's mine. And then Thriller. I mean, mm. we, the album comes out. This is Michael Jackson. This is like Michael Jackson, peak Michael Jackson. He's out. You've got PYT on that album. You've got Baby Be Mine. Billy Jean. I mean, everything. Again, another dance floor. Yeah. I mean, think about how many people learned. Every bat mitzvah. Every, <laughs> all of them. At least one part of it. You're going you're gonna to hear, you know, Billy Jean. So um, that's mine. And then. Of course, so you got Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. Yes. Like a Virgin comes out. I mean, well, it's, 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 was it like a Virgin 84? Uh, yeah, kind of. You yeah. saw, I'm going to go with Lucky Star. Lucky Star, or, or um, no, yeah, Lucky Star is probably okay. a good one. 
I would. I will. I'll save mine. I'll wait <laughs> okay. my turn. Well, for me, I was very young. I was about six, seven. But my mom uh. was young. <laughs> my mom was young. My mom had me very young. So she was 23, 24. Uh-huh. So I was influenced and I was around when she had her parties. And um, I was peeking out the, the side door. And I was supposed to have been in my room watching TV and going to sleep. Um, one song, I think, defined everything for me. And it kind of was a, a prelude to hip hop was I Can Make You Dance by Zap. Oh, yeah. And um, that record to this day, like this is barbecue season. Mm-hmm. You put that record on and people lose their mind. So that was probably just everything for me. Anything them, but especially that. I would also put Lucky Star by Madonna. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that was a record that came on not just pop radio, but soul radio too. And I don't think I the identities were as important as it was just the groove of the song. And that song to this day, when I listen to it, it just takes me back just like Zap does. Right. Third in there is Superstar, Till You Come Back to Me from Luther Vandross. Right. That's a huge talent show song, but it's like a seven, nine minute song that doesn't feel that. It feels like three, four minutes and his vocal performance is just perfect on there. And me being so young, it was still, it was one of those songs that everyone just loved. And his one of his best songs and it's just something that just takes me back. So those are the three that define that not just that year but kind of just me being so young everything going forward for pop music for Madonna for hip hop and dance music for Zap and just R&B for Luther Vandross so that's just everything for me oh that's cool see now I was not six or seven <laughs> <laughs> I was a little Sli- bit older slightly older slightly not much I still had a paper route and I was still in high school uh, and that's 1983 is like that sweet spot where I had this paper route and I could time the houses and how long it took based on the cassettes in my Walkman. Mm. So I knew if I threw on seven of the Ragged Tiger and I started the paper route that I'd be done by the seventh stranger, you know, at the end. Mm. Uh, but, you know, and I, I'm also like a second single Sally. You know, I never liked the first single. I always like the follow up. So Duran Duran definitely, is there something I should know? Uh, underra- Not Hungry Like the Wolf? No. Underrated <laughs> song. Is there something I should know? You know, it kind of tacked on to the re-release of the first record. And it's a big hit that everybody kind of forgets about it after the reflex and everything. I love that song. Uh, Flock of Seagulls, Space Age Love Song. Not Iran. Um, God, 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 Space, Space Age Love Song is a good one. It's a jam, right? It is a jam. The video's horrible. But yeah, don't. Let's not song. go there. Great. <laughs> and probably the third song uh, would be, uh, I'd have to say... Uh, Naked eyes, always something there to remind you. Or promises. I'm always promises. a promise. Yeah. person myself. You know, yeah, it's it's dead heat with those two because that's a band. You know, you had all these synth duos. You had Yaz or Yazoo in the states, and Pet Shop Boys, but uh, Naked Eyes always had this like really sad undercurrent to all their songs. It sounded super happy and poppy, but they were always really kind of bitter when you listen to the lyrics. And I don't know, as as a bitter 13 year old, I think that appealed to me. Oh, I found that song when I was like 20, and it was still sad. So yeah. it didn't change. <laughs> didn't change. What about uh, First Dance to True? Oh, oh, you see, well, if you're going to get into that, I was a Spandau <laughs> fan before True, so I found True to be like a huge betrayal at the time because it was like so uh, poppy and uh, ballady, and I like the early stuff that was much more new romantic. But now I go back and I love that record because True has stuff like Communication and Code of Love. There are a lot of great songs on there. So I came around, but at the time I was like, how could 
That's how you get the ladies on the dance floor, yeah, though. You know, or the gentlemen. I was a DJ at <laughs> my high school, too. Was, you know, it's, it's a sad history. Yeah, 83, <laughs> 83 seemed very... It seemed like the year where the 80s sound, that it really... I think that year in 84 was the years where you really dug so into the 80s applied. sound. Exactly. That's where you got the 80s sound from, was 83 and 84. You got the, the Fairlight CMI, which was a big thing in the 80s. It was a very expensive synthesizer that made all these sounds. And the, the little orchestral boop you would hear on yeah. every song. The gated snare drum sound that was on everything. Yeah, definitely uh, coming back when you hear some bands now. I hear that and I go, huh, I see. Somebody went to Amoeba. <laughs> Did some record shopping. Uh, anything else strike anybody, or is this pretty much it for 1983 for now? One, an album, Can't Slow Down. Oh, I was going to say. Oh, Lionel yeah, Richie's Can't Slow Down. Again, that, that essential 80s album, other than the two obvious Thriller and Purple Rain, the Can't Slow Down album was like Lionel coming from a soul band to just being pop, and a lot of people copied that after that. All but night it was, long. man, running with the night. Love Can Run Away is my song from that. Oh, I love it is yeah. absolutely one of his best songs that he's written and in general. The most meme worthy song of that record is Hello. Yeah. <laughs> I made a meme with All Night Long. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. <laughs> my kitten bouncing all over across the bed for hours. <laughs> Appropriate. <laughs> yeah. And since everything has to go back to uh, the monkeys, you yeah. know who produced the video for All Night Long? Michael Nesmith. Wow. Really? <laughs> all roads lead to monkeys. All roads. Yeah. That's Fun true. fact you can yeah. use in uh, any kind of music trivia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Save that for your next uh, pub trivia night. Yeah. That's the Rhino Roundup for this week. Thanks, everybody. I certainly learned a lot about Twisted Sister from J.J. today. And, you know, the thing about J.J., if I may say so, is that I'll bet he was like he is today from day one. This combo punch of someone who comes right out and tells you he knows what he's doing, but also a businessman. And just a ball of energy. 2016, that was it. It was time to go. But based on our conversation, he hasn't stopped performing. Well, folks, thanks very much for listening to this episode of the Rhino Podcast. And don't forget, you can't stop rock and roll and Live at the Marquee are now out and available for your listening pleasure at your favorite streaming outlets. Both releases are also out on vinyl. So go to your local record store and check those out, too. And last but certainly not least, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next RhinoCast. Executive producers for Rhino, John Hughes and Lauren Goldberg. Produced for Rhino by Pop Colt and Rich Mayhan Promotions. All rights reserved. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.